hello, hello. Welcome to 254 Karada. I am your host, Socrates. And for those of you who don't know, <laughs> now you know. Um, yes, welcome to 254 Karada, which means stay woke, which goes along with the theme for this because the podcast, the main aim is to just make sure that we're all woke and alert and just privy to what is going on, not only in our country as Kenya, but also just all over the continent, you know what I mean? Um, and for my regular listeners, you guys already know the spiel. We always have three segments in the show. The first is the African Gem, where we shout out African excellence. The second segment is Police Soch, where we talk about the social political issues on the continent, focusing on specific countries, and sometimes it applies to the whole motherland, so you know. We like to keep y'all on your toes. Um, <laughs> and by we, I mean me. <laughs> and also, sometimes I have featured guests. And the third segment is Shower Yako, which is the advice segment of the show. And I'm actually excited to see you. Someone also sent me a question this week, so I'm excited about that. Um, so, yeah, let's kick it off with the African gem. So, the theme, the episode of this week, I'm calling it Death Fest Teft. And chefs and you know I'm gonna pull all of that rhymes <laughs> but our African gem this week is a chef she goes by the name Christelle Vugo Annette um, she is from Côte d'Ivoire <laughs> for my French Lisa as you can hear my my French chanson coming true the radio waves uh, merci chérie um, <laughs> So yeah, she's from Côte d'Ivoire. For y'all English people, y'all know it is the Ivory Coast. <laughs> so she's this infamous chef. And just like a lot of us Africans, like, you know, like she was going to study accounting, actually. Because, you know, in this world, like of having African parents, like there are only a few um, professions that are like most accepted. <laughs> she's going to be an accountant and she actually studied for it. Um, she actually moved to the United States where she was working in restaurants, actually, you know, like from the ground up, like just, you know, being a waitress, cleaning up the restaurants. And, you know, she met her husband or whatever. And that's where the name Annette comes. And he's also like a cook. And so together they opened up a restaurant in Atlanta called The Avenue. You know, and I know right now y'all are thinking, hold up. It's supposed to be African gem. Like it's supposed to be all about what they're doing for the continent. Not what they're doing as a diaspora. But here's the thing, right? Because they did what all diaspora should be doing. Like if you go out there to, I don't know, freshen up your skills or whatever, then you bring it back home. You know what I mean? So they have opened up up to date three restaurants in Côte d'Ivoire. Eh? The first one they opened up was called Norima. Eh? And at first they were just introducing the locals to kind of like quintessential like American dishes. And then now once they got the hang of that, they opened their restaurant, another one called Le Sacan. Huh? And this is Chef Christelle. You know, we're saying they because, you know, she did it together with her husband. But, you know, today we're featuring her. Okay. <laughs> um, and so that specialized on, like, African food. Mostly Ivorian food. Um, food from Côte d'Ivoire. Um, and then the third one that she opened, actually, there was one that she opened is called the Amaya, and that was like Thai and Mexican fusion dishes. But that restaurant closed, but that didn't stop her because she opens another one called Le Mondial. Like, you know what I mean? Like, she is just working. 
and that one has like a like a mixture of um African foods. You can find crocodile meat, guinea fowl with some potatoes and sauces. Like they just mix like basically what they do at home, but also like from their experiences that they've gained abroad. And so she's like known as a celebrity chef in Cote d'Ivoire. She has won several awards, including like her restaurant winning restaurant of the year in Abidjan Restaurant Week. And she's also won best service and best African restaurant. Let me tell you about something about winning best service on the continent. Like, let me tell you about something. You know, customer service on the continent, I always say, well, you know what? Let me just talk about Kenya. Like, you know what I mean? I don't want y'all coming for me. Like, sometimes the customer service is subpar. And it's because everybody's, like, hired by someone that they know. So they're like, girl, what, what do I have? To, what, what are you going to do to me? Hey, you're going to report me. And then who's going to fire me? Oh, ah, my cousin puts me here. Oh. <laughs> so for you to win best service, like, I feel like it's a big deal <laughs> on the continent. But, yes, that is our African gem, Chef Christelle Rougo Annette. Look her up, and if you're in Cote d'Ivoire, like, get a bite. And if you're, like, you know, an African or a non-African up in Atlanta, stop by her restaurant called The Avenue, right? Um, So let's kick it off. You know, like I said, the theme of the episode this week is death, theft, teff, and chefs. And we've already covered the chef of the episode. But now I want to kick it into the death. Like, let's, you know, let's get the bad... I mean, I mean, all the topics I was going to say are bad news, but, you know, let's get the words bad news out of the way. First, we're handling Kenya like, you know, a lot of us are grieving because Ayub Ogada passed away on February 1st. He was found in his house dead um, at the age, at the tender age of 63, y'all. Um, so he's infamous for playing the Nititi, which is his famous Luol instrument. It has eight strings. Um, it's kind of like wide at the top and has this like circle board at the bottom. I don't know how to explain it. Um, but you know, he's one of us, he's Luo and yeah, and wood Luo and wood Luo and wood and yeah, I can't. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, so he passed uh, almost a week ago now by the time you guys listen to this episode. Um, one of his most famous songs actually is called Kofbiro, eh? which means the rain is coming. And I feel like you've heard this song, whether or not you're Kenyan, because it did really make it internationally like as well. It was played at the Rio Olympics in 2016. It's been like in the soundtrack of movies, like for example, The Constant Gardener, The Philanthropist. It was also like used by Guinness in their advertising campaign. Also, most recently, Kanye in his album, Yay! Um, use the compositions and the lyrics in his song called Yikes. You know what I mean? And Ayub was also like an actor. He acted in like Out of Africa and Kitchen Toto. Like, you know, he was just an African gem in his own right. And he's influenced a lot of like musicians that like we all love, like Susan Oweo, um, Makadem, who actually has a concert this weekend. Is it this weekend? Yes, yeah, this weekend, February 8th. I'm thinking about going, I'm not sure. Um, yes, he also has influenced a, a friend of mine. You know, like, how when you know, when you know someone who's famous, just, like, on the slide, when you talk about him, you gotta be like, he's my friend. Yeah, Dan Onyango, you know what I mean? So, he was just really influential, influential, and I don't, like, his life is not in vain, um, and he just really left a great legacy. 
Now, the next death we're going to talk about is in Ghana. Now, I don't know if you guys remember, but last year I was talking about this uh, guy named Anas who had done this expose undercover. Anas is actually his alias. And he does a lot of undercover, like, um, investigative journalism. That's why he uses an alias. That's why, like, he never shows his face in these things and uses, like, you know, he covers himself up and, like, uses disguises. So one of the most recent things that he did was expose the corruption in the Ghanaian Football League. Yeah, he exposed, like, some referees, like, taking bribes and all that stuff. You know, so a lot of people were shocked about this, but also some people were upset. Notably, um, a Ghanaian MP who was like, how you gonna do this to our people? Like, how you gonna shame us like this? Huh? His name was Kennedy Agyapong. Eh? Agyapong, I hope I'm saying that right. Agyapong. Eh? Mr. Kennedy Agyapong. So he was like, how you gonna do this to us? Right? Like, Anas, like, how dare you? So around his premises, apparently another colleague of Anas, because you know they're investigative journalists, so they do, you know, anywhere that they go, not anywhere, but if they have a story, they're going to follow it, they're going to have their hidden cameras. So apparently, Mr. Kennedy found out that another colleague of Anas was visiting uh, some of his premises, and so he had videos and cameras, evidence of this, and so what he did was um, actually expose the photo of this person. So this colleague was called Ahmed Hussein Swale. Um, so Swale, like I said, he worked with Anas, but he the, his photo was exposed, right? And so up until then, no one knew who Swale was. His even his family didn't know that he worked with Anas and like did all this investigative journalism stuff. Until Mr. Kennedy was like, watch out for this person. He works with Anas. If you see him in your buildings, trust me that he's doing some expose thing. He's going to leave like hidden cameras there. He's going to record you. He's going to like basically defraud you. That's what he was saying. And then Mr. Kennedy, our member of parliament, Kennedy Agyapong, went further to say, and if you see him, eh, beat him, slap him, beat him, whatever happens, I will pay. Eh? I will take responsibility of it. And I literally, the quote, he was like, if you meet him somewhere, slap him, beat him, whatever happens, I will play. I will pay. Now, what happened was mid-January, Swale was gunned down by some guys on motorbikes as he was leaving his house. Three shots, two in the chest and one in the neck. And he even tried to escape, but then they followed him where the car crashed after they shot him and like made sure he was dead. Now, here's the thing. Now that they're doing investigations, because they're obviously like, his death clearly has to do with his work because no one knew who he was. His family and his even close friends didn't know he worked there because after the guy exposed the photo, then his friends were like, oh, for real? Like, you really do work for him? How come we didn't know? Do you, do you? Um, so basically, police are opening investigations and they're questioning this MP, right? Um, and the BBC has an interview with this guy and he's like, eh, 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 read my lips. Eh? He's like, read my lips. He does not bear, he's like not taking responsibility for Swally's death because in his mind, he's saying, first of all, he doesn't trust the police. So, cause they kept asking, they were like, if you had all this evidence in his photos, why didn't you turn it into the police for them to do something about it? And he was like, ah, I don't trust the police. So will you incite citizens to do something? Like you're a member of state, like, are you crazy? Like, are you, 
insane, but you know what I mean? Like, this is impunity, right? And to me, I would blame it on him because at this point, it's like, even if people wanted to get to Anas or to get to Swali or to get to anyone else on their team, they're anonymous. Even Anas was saying, like, we don't even sleep in the same place. They said they'd received several threats, like, about them leaking the story about the Ghanaian Football League corruption. And so they were, like, expecting something to happen. But, like, you know, like, once the guy put his photo out, it was a wrap. And so, personally, I think that Mr. Kennedy should be held responsible because he's the one that exposes photos and basically led to him being, like, ousted and therefore, like, jeopardized his safety. Um, he doesn't think so. He said it's rubbish. And he's he basically told the guy, ask me intelligent questions. Don't ask me about whether, like, I should be at fault for this guy because they were, like, he's like, I'm the victim. They were coming into my premises and trying to record and try to catch me doing stuff. And I'm like, if you're not worried, yeah. if you're not worried, why care? Yeah? If you're not worried, why care? You were afraid because he was going to expose you for doing shady stuff and therefore you agitated the the citizens like your constituents to do something about it and then some thugs gunned him down so you know what canceled not here for you um but r.i.p ahmed hussein swale um him and his team actually received a lot of accolades even before they died because they were doing a lot of investigative pieces they received accolades from obama Mm -hmm. and even the president's nana uh had congratulated them so like you know, as much as they were exposing stuff, they were exposing the truth. And, you know, I hope the work continues. I feel like whenever this happens, to, this is happening all over the continent, honestly. I feel like uh, when they released that, uh, Rutgers rele released their, um, basically rating countries as to what, like, the best countries, like, to be in, like, as a journalist or, like, where journalists are not safe. And a lot of Africans were, like, scoring really low. So I feel like this is an issue everywhere in terms of, like, freedom of speech being stifled. And also just your life being at risk. Because this is, I mean, and this is part of me, like, of doing the podcast. Because it's also, like, you know, you want to know the information, right? And sometimes the information is out there, but it's not mainstreamed. And you have to make, sometimes dig for it because, you know, like, everything is trying to control how you're thinking and to control, like, what you think is going on in the continent or in the country so like you know that's why i'm all about staying well 254 car raza you wanna be um so on theft we've covered death eh? we have covered uh, we have covered death eh? but we're still moving on with let's move on with death eh? let's move on with death eh? because these people are trying to kill us eh? so in morocco right there was a recent study that this uh not in morocco this company called Public Eye studied Switzerland, cigarettes made in Switzerland. And so what they found was Switzerland is the only country in Europe that makes like different standard qualities, uh, quality of cigarettes in their country. Like places like France and other European countries, they have laws where like they're not allowed to make, they have to make the same cigarettes they're exporting and importing. Switzerland is the only country that doesn't have that, that kind of law. Um, so what they do is they make their cigarettes for their people, eh? With the, with their laws that they've been told, eh? So in Switzerland, basically, even in Europe, the limits are like the cigarette has to have less than ten milligrams of tar, 
less than 10 milligrams of carbon monoxide and less than one milligram of nicotine. And most of the brands there do stay between like nine milligrams of tar, six to nine carbon monoxide and under like 0.85 of nicotine. So what this study showed eh, was now that they had another abyss, eh? the, 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 the cigarettes they're exporting eh, to, to Africa, eh, to us, but this, this study focused specifically in, in Morocco. They found that the cigarettes that they were making to export, which is about 75%, uh, were like almost even double. So for example, like how their limits are supposed to be 10 milligrams of tar, the ones they found in Morocco somewhere as high as 16.31 milligrams of tar. Carbon monoxide, higher than 10. Nicotine, higher than one. It was at 1.28 at the highest. So you're making toxic shit, more addictive shit for Moroccans. And the issue is like, uh, studies show that 13% of smokers are aged 15 and under in Morocco, right? And men and women like basically are proportionately smoking like the same amount, right? Like disc discrepancy is not that high and to me what this means is you have younger people smoking getting addicted at a very young age and even if they decide to quit 20 30 years later like they're already exposed to this toxic shit you know what i mean and the thing that i find interesting is because in places like switzerland in the past 20 years the number of like smokers or even like just in terms of like cigarette use has gone down by like 38 percent Right, the, the population that smokes has gone down by 38%. But if you look at the continent right now, I think the number is about a little bit under 7% of the African population smokes, but they like predict that that number will rise by 40% by the year 2025. Now, here's the thing, we can't just, one, the moral like, the moral standards, right? Like you have no qualms making dangerous cigarettes that you would not even sell to your own people, then for us, let's not be, it's not right, it's not right. And then secondly, there's the issue of, they say like, you know, oh, they like their cigarettes stronger and they don't really have the laws against, you know, they don't really have like, their set limits and they don't have laboratories to even test the amounts or what the issues or the effects are. In my mind, I'm like, as African leaders, as African people, we don't really need someone to come and run a test to tell us how dangerous cigarettes are. We know, number one. Two, we know the effects because other countries have lived it. We can see that they're not doing it anymore. But even now, like a study showed that most cigarette smokers live in low to mid, like to mid income, like level countries. Like, you know what I mean? Like developing countries basically are where all the cigarette smokers are eh? and you see the developed ones that they're that not doing it anymore eh? but they still want their money right so they're making it for us and making it more toxic and addictive and so like to me i'm thinking okay even maybe if some laws don't exist because they're like listen we already have too many problems but you see this is my thing right because right now like i said the number is 6.5 percent of people are smoking if that number is going to go up by 40 percent it means that once again, we're going to have something that is killing us in the future, right? Like, it's not gonna be HIV AIDS, it's not going to be, you know, malaria, it's not going to be typhoid, now it's going to be like lung cancer and shit, you know what I mean? Because we're not being proactive. And I feel like this is an issue everywhere because even in, in uh, 
first of all, in Morocco, every year, right now, 17,600 people die every year because of tobacco-caused diseases, right? And that's just, like, because, while still a small percentage of their population is smoking. You know what I mean? So how, how big are those numbers going to be when, when, the number, when the number goes up by 40% on the continent? Eh? Um, and what you find, and the thing that makes me kind of upset is that these countries that do produce um, like almost like higher, more addictive and stronger and toxic cigarettes for developing countries, they actually fight against us developing any policies towards like limiting that. Like I know in Kenya and Uganda, there's a British American tobacco company that like tries to prevent the government from taking preventative measures to like limit tobacco. Like I know in Kenya, the whole like, Thing about banning shisha was like publicly debated because they're like listen like shisha is not the problem is these cigarettes like how are you gonna ban shisha and not monitor you know um, just tobacco or regulate its use just in general and that's the thing there are powers that be that are opposing this right so for one in my mind I'm like you didn't have to ban shisha you could just regulate tobacco like just have limits on what is imported the quality and like arrest places that are using like toxic shit like be vigilant about that you know what i mean like because they don't care like you know in my, in my mind i'm like in their mind it's going they can't they're not selling as much as they are in their country so in switzerland they only like are using 25 percent of the cigarettes that they're making with like better standards on their people 75 percent of the other shit is exported you know what i mean and so I think this is like, with this story, I kind of saw like the whole concept of, because at first I was like, okay, you know what? They're saying, oh, Moroccans like it's stronger. So immediately I was like, okay, as the, as the government, like it is your duty to now set limits for your people. Like you can't just be like, oh, they like cocaine. So we're just going to let them have cocaine. No, you have laws, you make certain things illegal <clears throat> and you bar countries from like, exporting shit to you that's toxic right it doesn't matter what like your people like they're, they're gonna they're gonna you're gonna curtail what their preferences are by setting these limits right because it's the same thing in america cigarettes used to be insanely toxic they still are to be honest but they're like lowering it right because of campaigns about anti-smoking and its effects right and so i'm immediately i'm like okay our governments need to do that but then to think that now when they do that that these countries actually try to prevent them from doing that and like literally fight them in court cases like you know what i mean like they fight them like there was this um story i think still the british american tobacco company that was fighting kenya and uganda like they actually like started a litigation in i think uruguay and they ended up losing but like because they were trying to say like they shouldn't have anti-smoking like campaigns or regulations and i was like really really and i think in places even like morocco like they say like some of the laws they have like do bar you from smoking in certain bars or restaurants but it's not really enforced you know what i mean so i just don't know i just feel like a lot of things are trying to kill us as the african people and i just it's just being fought like on multiple fronts and i just don't know which one we need to address like we need to we just need to be vigilant 
and attack all these things on many fronts eh? eh? we're going to be fighting lung cancer in less than 15 years eh? it's going to be a high number for us eh? the poor people are spending the money on cigarettes eh? feeding the pockets of the swiss eh? they have they have their chocolate eh? they don't need any more money they have their cheese oh and then aren't they like the neutral like hey, don't you like don't they allow you to like hide your money there and stuff and they don't have like extradition or something like that like listen they are making enough we our lives eh? our lives eh? losing our lives should not be profiting them more but it is eh? we have to take a stance eh? i can't but on the same note like i said death theft theft and chefs we've gone through with the death now let's talk about the theft you know what i mean and the theft is kind of like really linked to the theft as well i mean and i really think like these countries these Western countries are really trying us. Like this whole shit of neo-colonialism, and this is the thing that pisses me off: is this idea that us being this kind continent of people who are like culturally inviting, and they just take advantage of it, right? So, you know, for anybody who's ever had Ethiopian food, you know you got the injera, and you have the white one, um, and then you have the darker one, which is called teff. And it's gluten-free and it's native to Ethiopia. Like they I think from like four thousand BC or something, like it's been there. Like it is their grain, they farm it, like it is indigenous to Ethiopia. So in two thousand and five, like uh in terms of like just trying to improve trade and like boost exports and stuff, they allowed this company, this Dutch company, to have it uh patent and what it allowed is what allowed them to do is that now they were able to sell it in other countries in europe right but the deal of the agreement was uh they would like ethiopia would still have basically all the like the patent rights to the actual grain like it is theirs like you know what i mean and the agreement also was like the intellectual property rights of like just think like if you're writing a song like those rights are yours like even if someone else is singing it even if you write a song and beyonce is singing it at the end of the day they're placed like you've given it to her but there are things in place in their agreement where it's like you could still profit like from that you know what i mean so it turns out eh, this company eh, was like thank you now they went ahead and patented the product in other countries, right? They patented in Netherlands, they patented in Austria, they patented in Germany, they patented the in Austria, in Britain, Italy. And basically what it means is that they're the ones with the rights of this grain in these countries and they're the only ones who can sell it. Basically, Ethiopia cannot sell it because of the patents and how they're set. I mean, I'm not an intellectual property expert, but just think like, this is like piracy, but like, in the agri field biopiracy is called like i can't so basically for 14 years ethiopia has been trying to get this patent revoked and it's been kind of tricky because apparently <laughs> the company which is uh what is it called the company is called health and performance food international so apparently it ceased to exist and apparently also the patent was given to one individual and it's tricky because also Ethiopia is like accusing the Netherlands as well of not monitoring the fact that this company was trying to monopolize like 
on something that is theirs, like their grain, like it's indigenous to them. Like this form of like the episode where I was talking about trademarking the culture, like this is like the bio version of Hakuna Matata being patented by Disney, right? And then now, of course, after they've made their money, now what? They're going to surrender that. They'd be like, all right, we're going to let you have it or whatever. But you've already stolen from us, right? And it's, it's crazy because it's the Netherlands as well. Like, I know some uh, Africans in Netherlands or, you know, sometimes they say, like, yeah, there's racism there as well. But I'm surprised because some of these countries, like, I feel like they get a rap of being, like, these friendly, woke, and just, like, you know, supporting, like, African people. Like, I know even, like, the Netherlands actually support, um, they have this junior program officer position where they sponsor African um, youth to, like, get employment in, like, the United Nations. So I'm like, how you doing that? And then you're doing this. And Ethiopia's like actually like going into the works of getting an attorney, like the attorney general to pursue this case to win back their theft patent. And in my mind, I'm like, are you crazy? Because in my mind, where, 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 are, you, where are you growing these things? Where, where, where are you growing them? Eh? You are still going there to grow them. And then now you're coming to sell them eh? in your own country. They're cutting us out of the deal. And it's like this dehumanizing of like, us just at this level it's like double standards and you know immediately of course you have to think like of course our leaders have to be smarter like they should have foreseen this and put the proper you know the proper safeguards in mind and i mean in line but it's also like i don't know like i think maybe you're dealing with like I mean, I don't want to, like, claim ignorance. But, you know, I think maybe some, some of these things could be done in good faith. Maybe this is also a lesson learned, like, you know? Because, in, I mean, in my mind, I'm like, how else would they have gotten to export TEF if they hadn't given this Dutch company, like, you know, some rights to be able to sell it? But they weren't saying, like, oh, this TEF belongs to you and only you can. You know what I mean? Because as a country, we're going to develop. We're going to be able to, like handle our own export. We're going to be able to make our own contacts in different countries. And I was like, the more countries they patent in it, they get it patented in, it further blocks Ethiopia from doing it. So I think it's in, uh, they're trying to patent it in Japan as well, in the US, and some countries in Latin America. And it's like, bruh, really? And TEF is bomb. You know what I mean? Like, TEF is bomb. Like, I feel like Westerners are just getting into injera and stuff. And TEF is probably like going to be the new in thing because it's gluten-free. And everybody's like, you know, celiac. <laughs> That's not funny. I just don't know why I know that fact. <laughs> so, like, I just, I hope that they win this before things get worse. Um, But, like, a similar kind of theft thing in South Africa uh, is going on, but between, actually, a private company. So, Vodacom which is like a telephone company, similar to Safaricom, T-Mobile, AT&T, um, you know, it's just a phone company. So this guy is called Makate. Um, he's working for Vodacom a few years ago, and he comes up with this idea, and he develops a product. It's not in his job uh, detail, you know, like it's not something that he was supposed to do for the company, but he kind of gave the company the idea under the guise or the agreement of this is my idea and if it comes to fruition and if it works 
I'm gonna need royalties, my G. Same thing, where it's like, you know, you're this bigger company, I've cut this idea, it would make sense if you have it, but it is my idea, it is my brainchild, it is my indigenous grain, yeah? Is I okay? Um, and I know for work it's usually tricky, because sometimes maybe the contract, there's the whole, like, um, any product that you make with us is technically ours, like the company's. Um, so basically, what he the idea that he had was, uh, you know, here, even with Safaricom, you buy credit to use your phone. Uh, and not credit like a loan, but like you go buy minutes, basically, or text messages, and you input that into your phone, and then now you have money to be using your phone. So when that runs out, for, even for Safaricom, there's a feature where you can send a please call me, like, I don't have credit, basically, but call me. Like, I can't call you, but you can send, like, that note in the using that app to be like, call me, I don't have like my credit. Which is great, right? Because you know, sometimes you're like, I wanna call you, but I'm just not, I'm not next to a store or just for any reason, I'm not able to like top up. And you can't text because you have no money, but on this app you can send a please call me and then the person can call you if they can. So Vodacom implements it and it's making them money, but the guy's like, all right, where's my cut? And they're basically like, uh, Najee, like you made this for us while you're working for us. This is our, what do you mean? We give you a salary. Are you not happy with your salary? <laughs> and McCarthy's like, you know what? I'm fighting for this. I'm going to court. He goes to like local courts and they basically say no. Uh, they're like, well, you did make it for the company while you're working for them. Therefore, you don't deserve like, like your salary is payment enough. And so McCarthy's like, uh, he appeals, right? And uh, when he appeals to the Supreme Court, the Constitutional Court, basically, the highest court in the land, they're like, yeah, you know what? You do deserve, this was your idea, and you do deserve a pay from this royalties or whatever, and we are leaving it up to you guys to decide how much that is, right? Um, so basically, Makate goes back to Vodacom, and I think, it's, I mean, it's confidential, so they're not really telling us what their discussions are, but basically, the number that they offer him, Makate's like, bruh, not even close to what I was thinking, I mean, this was my brainchild, and so there's, like, hiccups about that, and the thing that I love, you know, last week we were talking about how Kenyans on Twitter are, like, you know, just revolution, like, having revolutions on the internet. The South Africans on Twitter, though, you know, they started the hashtag PayMakate. And not only that, but they went a step further and actually even started, like, um, protesting at some of their stores. So some of the Vodacom stores had to close down, like, for safety reasons, whatever. I mean, they weren't really doing anything. They were just basically like, PayMakate, PayMakate. And I was like, you know what? I am here for this. Because, you know, now, like, I feel like... If you're, like, an entity and you're just fighting an individual, like, you can stall. Like, you could be like, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah, you, I, I'll give you 20%. It'll be like, no, I want 50. I'll give you, like, you could be, like, 21%. Because in your mind, you're like, the longer you take, you have the resources to keep fighting this man. But not the fact that the South Africans, you know, are joining hands with Makati and, and coming to the store and protesting, right? Because it once again looks like some, like an entity taking advantage. You know what I mean? I feel like South Africa, there's a history of this, you know, like the, the, the monopolization of, you know, certain entities and the putting down like the common man. Like, you know what I mean? So I feel like they're just triggered. 
So I'm here for it. You know what I mean? Like, I am here for it. Pe makateo. Pe makateo. So that is it for our death, theft, teth, and chefs. <laughs> Police ocean African gem segment. Now we're going to go into the Shariafo segment. Um, <laughs> this was something sent over by Akini. It's a fake name because obviously if I use the real name, I can't. Um, so she's basically like, hey, Socrates. <laughs> I don't know if I should just read the whole, I'm just going to read the thing. Hey, Socrates, I've heard you complain about how your listeners do not send you things for you to give input on for this segment. And so I wanted to give you a tryout. <laughs> I can't. I have a friend of mine whom I love and have been friends with her for six years. All throughout our friendship, there is a pattern that persists and it is starting to bother me even more. The issue is that I do not feel like she goes out of her way for me. She does not put in much effort. Essentially, we only hang out at her convenience, doing what she likes, and I feel unheard in our friendship. I usually retreat when this starts to bother me, and then she hits me up after a while, and we never get to quite talk about how I feel because whenever I bring it up, she gets defensive, and we get into an even bigger fight than I would jar again. And after a while, we start talking again as if nothing happens. Lately, I've been thinking that perhaps I should just end the friendship and have been wondering if it is a friendship worth keeping, but I don't know why I'm on the fence about it. I should just cut her off, right? What do you think? <laughs> okay, Akiyi, okay. Um, this is very interesting, right? And I think if this was you sending me this about like, a relationship or a man I'd have been like girl break up with his ass because just men aren't worth it um but I think with friendships um which it should, it should also be like this with relationships to be honest but it's a bit tricky when um you know friendships evolve and I don't want to come out of the bank and tell you like bro this is not a friendship that you should be investing in like if you don't feel like your love or your efforts are being reciprocated walk away because at the end of the day this person has been your friend for you said six years so in my mind if i was your friend i would give you insight by asking you certain questions so for one this person has been your friend for six years for a reason what is that reason you know as much as you say like you feel like she profits more out of your friendship because things are done at her convenience i would say like there's a time in your friendship where that worked for you, where you were getting something out of it, you know, of out of this kind of dynamic, right? So I think first it's important to understand why you were friends with this person in the first place, you know. And, you know, just doing, doing a list of also, like, the good things that you value about the friendship or have valued, even though maybe some of them have gone down or maybe they're not happening as much. And I think in doing that, you will see how perhaps you have evolved right because i think a lot of times when it comes to friendships and when we're thinking about like if it's we should cut them off or like just take a time out i think sometimes we focus so much on what the other person is doing wrong that maybe if we focused more 
on what we got out of the friendship and like how we were participating in the friendship we would also realize how much we have changed right and how much we have evolved so for you like you're saying like it's always been like this right what's different is that you're getting to a place where you want things to be different right and your dilemma i don't think is necessarily about cutting her off but more so i think you have a fear of if you do evolve to be a person that does not like this kind of behavior anymore and she stays the same then you know the question will be irrelevant because the the whole point is you would have evolved and she would have stayed the same and you wouldn't be able to carry on your friendship whether or not you wanted to and i think that's what your real dilemma is it's basically saying i want more for my friends because i've evolved and i really i'm becoming a type of person that wants more reciprocity and love and like just effort in my friendships and i fear that this person who i've been like you know friends with for so long might not be able to rise to that occasion and that scares me and that you know puts me in a situation where i'm like i'm about to cut this bitch off <sighs> Um, and I feel like that's how you're, that's probably what you would realize you're feeling, right? Cause you've been friends with her for six years. I don't think it's been all bad. Right. And I'm not telling you to stay in the friendship or to end it. I'm just saying like, do the inner work of figuring out, like make it about you. Right. Cause right now you're like, should I cut her off? She'd have been fucking up in these ways, but you can make it more empowering by being like, okay. Obviously, maybe when I was accepting this kind of behavior, maybe I had esteem issues. Maybe I didn't think I was worth someone putting in effort for me. And maybe now, through all the love that I've been giving myself, I'm like, you know what? I show up for my friends and I want them to show up for me. You know, I want my friends to, you know, go all out for me because I will reciprocate. I want my friends to sometimes inconvenience themselves just a little bit for me. You know what I mean? Like, and then just think about, like, the kind of things that you as a person once now and then i think once you know that then you'll be able to even have a more loving and compassionate discussion with your friend because instead of it being like i feel like you haven't been there for me i feel like you only do the things that you want i feel like da, 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 it becomes i have valued our friendship for six years you know it becomes um you have been there for me in a b c d f and I know that we have all, it wasn't all perfect. We've had fights about G, K, L, M, N, O, P, you know, S, T, U, I, you know, these things. And I feel like I've watched you grow and I'm watching myself grow. And I'm at a point in my life where I want more, you know, like I'm not saying that you have to do more. I'm just saying I feel like if things continue going as they are, we might not have any friendship left. And at that point, you've put all the, t the the things at the table where you're like, these are the things that I want and these are the things that I'm, I don't think I can compromise on. And I'm hoping as a friend, you won't make me compromise on and perhaps you could also, you know, grow to be more accommodating and loving. And then she's basically like, well, fuck you, bitch. Then you have your answer. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think friendships have to fall off. Like, the older I get, I don't think friendships... I mean, I remember I had friends where it was, like, pretty dramatic every time we stopped being friends. But, like, these days, if I fall off with people, I can do it, like, out of love. Like, I could be like, listen, girl, like, my needs have just changed. And you're not really contributing to those needs. Not that it's your job to meet my needs, but it's more so, like, the things that I want out of a friendship, out of a union, I'm not able to have with you. Therefore, I'm not going to force a union, girl. You know what I mean? 
Um, but you know, take it, advice. Don't take it either way, ni shauriako. <laughs> um, but right back to me with an update about what you did. Um, I know I made the name anonymous, <laughs> but I feel like if you're listening, you're going to know uh, whether it was you that sent the question. So, um, yeah. And so that's our episode. Um, you know, the intro song of the podcast, also the outro song, is going to be a Yubogada Kothbiro. Look it up on YouTube. Buy it on iTunes. Um, but until then, I will, like you know, talk to you guys next week. Bye. Oh.